G'day everybody, welcome back to the Birders Guide. How are we all today? Hope you've all had a fantastic week and been able to get, or fortnight actually, and been able to get out and about, do some birding. I don't know about where you live, but mid-north of SA has been pretty fantastic weather. Uh, not too hot, not too cold, not too windy. It'd be nice if it was a bit wetter, but it hasn't been, and since we can't change that, we will enjoy the fact that it's not too wet, I suppose. Uh, Birding-wise, for me, over this fortnight, uh, nothing particularly stands out, although a couple of days ago I did go to... Uh, where did I go? Um, I saw 38 species, and there's ducks, and I met a bloke there who I think might be David because he put up an eBird checklist as well. Um, White's Road. White's Road wetland in... Well, I don't know what suburb it's in, actually, but near uh, Globe Derby Park, just north of Adelaide. Nothing too out of the ordinary, uh, but one of the places where something out of the ordinary is not unheard of, so always a good place to check out if you're driving past. I had 38 species. A lot of things were nesting, musk lorikeets, rainbow lorikeets, superb fairy wrens. Uh, there was a Eurasian coot sitting on a nest, and everything was calling. And it's it's a bit of a shame that our tourism sector is dead currently, uh, because spring is a fantastic time to be out and about, because everything's calling, everything's mating and nesting, and it just makes things much easier to find. If you can hear them from a distance, helps you know which direction you need to be going in. But that's okay. It is what it is, and uh, maybe next spring we can be out and about. Although I do know that uh, we do have one bellbird tour on currently. Uh, not sure how many people are on it, but uh, they're up the north of South Australia, possibly into the Northern Territory. I don't know if you can get into the Northern Territory and back again from SA, but uh, definitely north of SA. From what I hear, chestnut-breasted whiteface, banded whiteface, grey grass wren, Aryan grass wren, thick-billed grass wren, grey falcon, so on and so forth. So at least one person's having a fantastic time at the moment. So anyway, hope you guys have done well with your birding this fortnight, and um, we'll see what uh, the weather brings in in the next few months. Uh, there's not really anything to report currently in terms of vagrants and rarities, and well, there's certainly nothing. There's certainly nothing worth breaking state boundary laws to go and see uh, that has been reported. And if someone has seen something that's worthy of reporting, perhaps it's best they don't tell the rest of us who can't go and see it anyway. With that in mind, really the only the only thing state-wise that I've seen that's worth noting is a black-shouldered kite in Tasmania, up near Launceston. So if anyone in Tasmania is looking for one, although I don't think it's been seen in the last few days, so uh, whether it's still around somewhere accessible or not remains to be seen. So with that in mind, we might just get into today's conversation. <laughs> listening to The Birder's Guide with Michael Greenshields. Now on the show today we have got Paul Brooks from Tasmania. Uh, he runs one of a number of pelagic trips that run out of Eagle Hawk Neck. If you talk to people who know pelagics around Australia, Eagle Hawk Neck is, if not the one to go on, uh, certainly one of the top 
two or three. So we just we got him on the show, and we're just going to chat pelagics out of Tasmania. So Paul, welcome to the Birders Guide. It's fantastic to have you on the show. G'day, Michael. Thanks very much for having me. Now, I'm going to just go out on a limb and assume that since you organise pelagic trips out of Eagle Hawk Neck, that you are based in Tasmania. Is that correct? That is a very good assumption. And have you lived there all your life? I have. I've lived in Hobart all my life. So you say you've lived in Hobart all of your life. Um, how how did you get into birding or when did you get into birding? Um, I got into birding when I was at university. I was studying science at the University of Tasmania. I was majoring in zoology and in the second year, one of the classes I was in, we were given an assignment, and that assignment was to compile a list of birds for the semester. So I did it, obviously, and um, I didn't stop doing it. And so has your birding, I don't want to ask how old you are now, but you no. haven't been birding your whole life, so... I, no, I haven't been birding my whole life, but I have been interested in nature, yeah. Since I was, you know, for as long as I can remember, really, I think I started off being more interested in kind of dangerous creatures, if you like, more your um, dangerous invertebrates and snakes and things like that. I was really into when I was little. And so, did you did you graduate your zoology degree? Is that what you? I guess I is that what you work that field now? Work in that field? No, I don't. I work in the family business, which is not science at the moment but um yeah no it never really came to anything to be honest <laughs> um so what do you do for a job what is the family business uh, family business is uh, real estate real estate yeah and do you enjoy that um keeping keeping in mind that your family may or may not listen to this at some point i highly doubt they'll ever listen to this um <laughs> And it is good to work with family. I do enjoy that. Now, I read somewhere, I think I read somewhere, uh, I think this was about you, that you also volunteer your time doing all sorts of other um, birding-related bits and pieces, so e-bird moderator for one thing. Is that correct? Is that you that I read that about? Yes, that's true. I do review for e-bird in Tasmania, and... I'm one of the moderators for Birdline Tasmania, mm-hmm. near Birdline. And how do you find that? Um, I enjoy it. You uh, get to have a look at the behind the scenes of what goes on at eBird and you kind of get a bit of a first look at whatever rarities might be popping up if uh, people are adding them to eBird, which not everybody does. Mm. It can be very handy for that. Do you have many reports come through that are wrong? Oh, yeah. Quite a lot. Mainly from um, visiting birders mm-hmm. and um, often international birders. It's amazing how many wrong reports you get from international birders who say it was identified by their guide. So yeah. that's, it's a good pug to say, always go with the local guide. So we're here to talk about pelagic trips specifically. How did you get into that? You did you have a particular interest in ocean birds, or um, yeah, how did how did you start with that? Uh, it was it was more kind of a progression, really. I, you know, when you 
Well, when I started birding, you're kind of fairly close to home, really, and you're not really sure that you're that into it. And, you know, you look in your local reserves, local parks, and then you kind of see all of the things that are close to you and you start looking further afield. And then the next thing maybe is waders and you start to try and find the waders that are close enough to you to find. Um, and then you've seen all of those and you wonder what am I going to do next? And the next thing is pelagic birds, which you know not a lot of people see from day to day. So that's basically it. So when did you start organising trips? Because you currently organise the ones running out of Eagle Hawk Neck, is that correct? Yeah, I organised some of them, and they're kind of mainly for locals. Um, mm. When I first got into it, it was very difficult to get onto a trip. Um, there wasn't anybody local really running that many, and you kind of had to be hanging off um, Burning Oz, to find out when the BirdLife Australia trips were going to be and then, you know, they'd be advertised and dozens of people would all try to get on these uh, one weekend of trips and, you know, often you'd be disappointed. Mm. Uh, and there were a few of us down here who were really interested in doing them more regularly. So um, a friend of mine, James Melville, and I started to organized one basically just for locals and we started out on a smaller boat because there wasn't that many of us and eventually realized we'd need to go up to the bigger boat because more and more people got more interested mm. and if we were ever a bit short we could um, fill the boat up with people from interstate. So what's involved in actually organizing a pelagic trip to start with? Is it as simple as just finding someone with a boat who's happy to take you out? Kind of. I mean, there is the one main boat that's been doing these trips for, well, decades really, the, the Poor Letter, um, run by John Mayles, and I think he's been going out since the 80s. So that's pretty much who you go to. There are um, with other smaller boats who used to take us out, but um, yeah, if you want to do a pelagic, you go with John Mayles on the Poor Letter. And, um, it pretty much is that simple. You ring him up and see if there's a date available that you're looking at. And he organises the burley and you organise the people and turn up and there you go. That's not too bad. So for those people who are listening to this who perhaps haven't been to Tasmania, can you give us an idea of where Eagle Hawk Neck actually is and then why it's a good spot for pelagic trips to launch from? I mean, I, I assume they chose that spot for a reason. Yeah, Eagle Hawk Neck is on the Tasman Peninsula. It's actually a small isthmus between the forest deer and the Tasman Peninsula in the southeast of Tasmania. And it's a very good spot for pelagic birding because it's very close to continental shelf break. So it doesn't take very long to get into very deep water. You're looking at usually only about two hours to get out there in good weather. That is why it's an excellent place to do it. It's also an excellent place to go seabirding because of its proximity to the Southern Ocean. And at the right time of year, we get um, an array of seabirds, which you don't get in other places. 
I'm going to guess that um, at least some people listening to this haven't been on a pelagic trip. But um, for those people, and for those of you who have, you can just listen in. For those people who haven't been on a pelagic trip, what's what's involved? Like, can you give us a rundown of what's involved in an eagle hawk neck day? Oh, so we're on the boat and we travel out of the heads. Um, for an eagle hawk pelagic, it kind of depends on the weather, which way we go. Um, if there's going to be some strong northerlies, we'll head north. Um, that's not all that common. Usually, we'll head kind of southeast, and there is a rock formation south of Eagle Hawk Neck called the Hippolyte um, that has a big breeding colony of black-faced cormorants. Uh, there's a new breeding colony of Australasian gannets there as well, and it's a big seal haul out, and there's sea eagles and all sorts of things hanging around there. So we'll head down there. It takes about an hour to get there, and from there we'll head out to the shelf break, which takes about another hour. When we get out there, kind of depending on if there are many birds around or, you know, if we want to go a bit deeper or what the weather's going to do later or whatever, we'll um, travel till we think we've got a decent spot to stop and then start to burley, which is basically throwing fish guts into the water and tuna oil and things like that. This is to attract seabirds, which um, they use their olfactory faculties to find their prey. So they can smell this stuff for miles around. And usually not long after you put the belly up, you'll have attracted some seabirds, fingers crossed. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. How many, do you guys have like a specific number of locations you usually try and stop in burley or does it just just potter around until you see some birds and how does it how do you choose your locations nowadays we generally like to get kind of southeast of the hip light in you know this not an exact area but we always think that's a good place to start because hopefully we've got some good southerly winds or something and you kind of get out of the show of tasman island a bit so you're hoping that there's good winds blowing southern birds at you. Um, some people who lead trips like to move around a bit. I tend to think when you've got a good slick in a place, the birds can smell it from further away than you can drive in 20 minutes or half an hour. So mm-hmm. I don't necessarily like to move that much. Occasionally, though, we will, if we're a long way out, we'll go back into the shelf break to see what's happening there or vice versa. But usually I like to just sit in one spot and as long as we're not drifting too fast, um, stick with it and see what turns up. Now, this is not a question that I had planned, but um, pelagic trips, everybody says, you know, the closer you can get to the continental shelf, the better. Um, Why is that? Why is deep water better for pelagics? Basically because the species that you're looking for don't tend to come in over the continental shelf that much. Is there a reason for that? Or just just that's just the way that it is? I don't know the exact reason for that. Maybe they've got prey that is you know, tied to the deep water zone. 
but yeah, I don't actually know that. Uh, you were talking. You were saying that um, <clears throat> pelagic species use their sense of smell to find to find your burley, uh, which obviously means a bit of wind isn't necessarily a bad thing to get that scent elsewhere. But Tassie can have some pretty rough sort of weather. I'm going to guess, being so far south, and with that perhaps a higher tolerance for bad weather for a pelagic trip. So, what's your cutoff for bad weather? That's just a little bit. A little bit too much. Um, if the skipper is scared, that's our cutoff. If uh, the skipper's scared, <laughs> and is this is this skipper someone who's taken his boat out for thirty years in all sorts of weather? Yeah, I think one day they had a, a trip on and they cancelled for weather, but they still went out and pulled their cray pots in. I think it was eight weeks that day or something. Anyway, it was, it was yeah. what? Sorry. He's got, I think it was eight metres out there that day. Eight metres swells. Yeah. <laughs> we don't go that far. I've, I've been out there when, you know, it's been getting six metre waves and, you know, it's blowing 40 plus knots, which is pretty hairy. And you wouldn't want to do it every day. Um, we are lucky that John Mayles has been around so long and knows the area so well. Um, so we feel pretty safe, but sometimes you just get the odd wave, which will make you question why you're out there. <laughs> I think in six meter waves, I would I'd be questioning that before I left the shore. But um, so, is weather like that? Weather that's that, you know, strong. Is that good for birding out there, or is that, you know, do you sort of go past the good and you're sort of going back down again? Yeah, I think that can happen. We always say it's good to have wind because that's how these birds fly. That dynamic soaring need wind to be up and about. And if there's not a lot of wind, then you're not going to see the birds up flying and it can be difficult to see them. If it is too windy, it's difficult to see anything because you're rocking and rolling on the boat and it's hard to focus on things. And there's the troughs in between waves that the birds will fly into. So if you do think you see something good, you might get a glimpse and then it'll disappear in a wave and then it's hard to try and find it again. So yeah, there mm. is a point where it becomes a bit too windy. Yeah. But I think we'd rather have it windy than not windy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I think a few trips have been out, uh, I don't know about Tasmania, but definitely South Australia and Victoria or maybe not Victoria, in the last month or two and it has just been dead still and everyone said that it's, you know, hardly any any number of species around. Yeah. So yeah. wind wind is a good thing. Yep. Definitely. Um do you get many seasick passengers? Um, there is often the odd one. It doesn't happen at the moment because, you know, our boys are closed and all of the people are locals and regulars and we all know what to do in terms of taking seasickness medication if that's necessary and um, I haven't seen one for a few months but I have seen some very very sick people out water probably the sickest I've ever seen people. For people who do get seasick um, who are thinking about going on this trip what's your policy for turning around if someone's sick? We don't. Uh, well, I don't know. I probably should. We haven't had to yet. 
um, I've had people kind of lying on the deck with a garbage bag for hours. And, you know, we checked if everybody's all right, obviously, and Mm. they didn't want us to turn around. So, you know, I think they knew knew the score. They knew that there were other people that had paid their money to be out there and they'd taken their medication and it hadn't worked. And, you know, that's what we say before the trip. We won't be turning around, you know, unless somebody's, um, I don't know, nearly dying. I don't know how you'd assess that. And most people who go on these trips are aware that it's not going to turn around unless you are on the verge of dying. That's right. Yeah. So... In your eyes, what makes Eagle Hawk Neck's pelagics, Eagle Hawk Neck pelagics, so special? I mean, everyone, I, ev- almost everyone I talk to about pelagic trips says Eagle Hawk Neck is the one to do if you have to do one. Yeah. Why? What makes it so special? I think the range of species that you could get, I mean, and the number and diversity of birds that you can get. And there are quiet days, but it just seems that there are less quiet days at Eagle Hawk. You've always got something going on. Even if you have a quiet trip, you've still got a dozen or so albatrosses flying around. And, you know, in summer, you've still got thousands of shearwaters. And there's just a better range of species you could get at any one time, I think. Yeah. What sort of, what sort of numbers do you get on a normal trip, like species-wise? Depending on the time of the year, I think normal for winter is probably around the 30 mark or higher. Um, and some are a little bit lower than that, unless you have a really good day. When's the best time of year to, to go on one of these trips if you get the chance? Well, it depends what you're after. Um, in winter, we get you know, kind of sub-Antarctic breeding birds um, and then in the summer we'll get you know, more subtropical kind of species so I think for most people they're looking for those winter birds like your fruity albatrosses and great petrel and blue petrel and the whale birds the cyprions that kind of thing so really winter early spring is good but you know you can see them in late May if you're lucky but yeah that, that's kind of the thing that people are looking for usually in Eagle Hawk so I'd suggest winter spring really yeah so I don't know the answer to this question but do you have any species that you see on your trips that aren't seen or are only really very rarely seen elsewhere in Australia like your trip's the only one to go on um, we seem to be the only trip that gets regular Westland petrel. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was kind of one of the benefits of starting our regular local trips. There hadn't been very many trips in May prior to us starting. And right from the start, we started getting Westland petrel very commonly in May. And it seems that they're a regular yearly migrant to the Tasmanian coast, east coast, around that time. So that would be one. We also seem to have a bit more luck with southern fulmar, usually around that time as well. And perhaps grey petrol too. I think they turn up in uh, Victoria and um, 
maybe Port Mac as well. But yeah. Have you seen any firsts for Australia on your trips? I haven't. No. Is there anything that you could get that would be first that you'd sort of just right on the edge and waiting for one to pop over? Uh, there's probably lots of things. Too many to name. I don't want to jinx mm. it. <laughs> yeah, true that. That's true. Um, so what's your... Are you guys still running Pelagics now uh, just for Tassie locals? Yes, we are. We're very lucky we can. We, uh, we have less people that we can have on the boat at the moment because of the restrictions about gatherings. But... We have been getting out there, which seems a little bit quiet, which is disappointing, but, um, you know, it's still just good to be out there. Yeah, yeah. And so how do people, either Tassie locals currently or, you know, whenever we can get whenever we can get over there, um, how do people get onto one of these trips? Um, yeah, how, do, so how do you advertise? I, I don't advertise. I, um, you know, I have a, a list of locals and see who can make the date and who can't and then fill up the boat with irregulars after that you know because we started for um we started these trips so locals can have a regular trip and get on the boat so that's always yeah. i think you said earlier that there were like other trips that head out of the same spot are they you know bird life australia trips or are they run by different organizations yeah there's the BirdLife Australia trips that Rowan Clark leads and there are the guys from Fossa in New South Wales come down probably yearly and the guys from Southport tend to have a yearly trip as well and there are other um, tour companies which have regular trips um, even um, international tour companies that come and do a regular trip uh, so yeah, there are lots, and it's growing every year as well. And I think there was, when I first started, there were five or six, seven or eight trips a year, and I think there are over forty last year, maybe maybe more. So it's kind of exploded, really. And so, are you still going to be involved, sort of, with these trips going forwards? You haven't. Uh... With all COVID stuff, you haven't had to put more time into real estate or anything like that? No, I'm still involved and I can see myself being involved for, you know, however long it takes. Yeah, cool. Oh, I think uh, I think that about covers it. So thanks for coming on the show and giving us some of your time and um, information about pelagic trips and maybe once, uh, maybe once this whole COVID nonsense nicks off, I'll... I'll come over and we can go out on a trip together and be good. Sounds good, Michael. All right. No worries, Paul. We'll uh, we'll catch you in the field sometime. No worries. Thank you. Have a good one. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. Tune in in a fortnight's time. We are going to be talking, hopefully, to Keith and Lindsay Fisher, who I'm fairly sure most of you will know. And if you don't, they are of... Kingfisher Park renowned. They owned that uh, joint up there for a long time. Uh, They've since sold it, but keen to get them on the show and chat all things birding in Queensland and everywhere else. Hope you have a fantastic fortnight out birding. Hope the weather treats you well. And until next time, happy birding.